All right. Today we're going to be looking at what makes Jesus' church so different from every community on the face of the planet. And it all pretty much comes down to how we treat each other. James has been sharing with us what the lifestyle of a father or a Jesus should look like. Last week we looked at the importance of a lifestyle of justice, treating people who need help the most the way Jesus would. Today James is going to go on and share what the lifestyle of mercy looks like. Last week he talked about how to treat people who have nothing and are almost always looked down upon and ignored and even mistreated because of it. Today he's going to talk about how we, how we treat people we might ordinarily treat better just because of how they look or how popular or how rich they are. James starts off this way in James 2.1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in your glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? And what follows is James' description of favoritism, treating a specific group or class of people different based on external factors. And the illustration James uses is that of a rich man. We're not going to read the whole thing right now, but he, here's the scenario that James lays out. Imagine a group of people are gathered together in Jesus' name. That's the church, right? And then a rich person walks in. But it doesn't have to be a rich person, just anybody that might impress us in our society today. So who would that be? Maybe an athlete, a celebrity, a talented person that can help me accomplish something that I want to accomplish, or good-looking people because in our society we favor folks with good looks, or maybe they're just rich. It doesn't matter why we're tempted to favor them over others. What matters is the scenario. We want to make sure they feel honored so we treat them better than the other people that come in. Now I want to take a minute to stress that there's nothing wrong with athletes or celebrities or talented people who can help me accomplish my goals or good-looking people or even rich people. James just says be careful about treating them better than everybody else. James calls that favoritism and he says it's a bad deal. So James says, imagine this person who you're impressed by comes into your, your house, your church, or your Bible studies, and then you treat that person better than you treat the people that irritate you or smell bad or don't live up to your standards for whatever reason. That's the scene that James lays out, and then he says this in James 2, 12 through 13. If you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. James seems to think that this is a pretty big deal. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but I know the, when I get to the time of God judging me, the word I want front and center during that conversation is mercy. For what I can tell, the more merciful I am to others, the more merciful God will be to me. Martin Luther King Jr., who helped change the world forever in the 1960s, had issues of his own. He said himself over and over that he was not perfect. But there's a quote of his that I really like. There was a guy who was a part of his inner team that had some really sketchy stuff in his background. So King's political advisors were telling him to kick the guy to the curb and get rid of him. But Martin Luther King Jr. said this, I find myself too often in need of the grace of God to not offer to others when they need it most. I think Martin Luther King was paraphrasing this part of James. You want mercy, then you need to show mercy to others. James spends quite a bit of time going through this, and it's the way Jesus lived his life. There are three places in the New Testament where the Bible says, Jesus did this for you, and you need to do this for each other. And I think these three scriptures sort of give us a picture of what a lifestyle of mercy looks like. They're like signs that sort of define Jesus' life. It's as though everywhere he went, these three signs were hanging around his neck for everybody to see. Some people loved it, and they flocked to him because of it. But there were also those that didn't appreciate these signs. 
well, what were these signs? Well, I'm glad you guys asked me this morning. The first one we're going to touch on that we're, this morning is that everybody's welcome. And I mean everybody. We don't get to pick and choose uh, who's a part of Jesus' family. This is the gift of radical acceptance. What does the Apostle Paul have to say about how we accept one another? Uh, check out Romans uh, 15, 7. It says, so accept each other, just as Christ has accepted you. Then God will be glorified. Remember, this is the first of three times the Bible is going to say, Jesus did this for you, now you need to do this for each other. So how should we accept each other? Just like Jesus accepted us. Well, how did Jesus accept us? Just as we are, and just as we were. He doesn't want us to wait to get cleaned up before we come to him. He wants us to come now and come today. Jesus offers you mercy. And then you start trying to figure out what this lifestyle of mercy will look like in your own life. And if we do that, Paul says, then God will be glorified. You want your life to bring glory to God? You need to start accepting people just the way they are. That means that if folks show up who are dressed in rags, and they smell, and they make you uncomfortable, you accept them just like Jesus did when you showed up dirty, ashamed, and messed up. It also means that if someone shows up looking like they've got it all together, it's like someone you're really hoping will stick around, you don't treat them any better than the people who make you uncomfortable. Maybe kind of like these guys. International Preservation Society tomorrow night. Well, come on, Cinderella. We gotta get you ready for the ball. Pretty woman walking down the street. Pretty woman, the kind I like to meet. Pretty woman. Thank you, sir. makes you feel like you want them to stick around super bad, or if your initial reaction is, gosh, I really hope they go to the Baptist church down the street. <laughs> you have to treat them the same way. No favoritism based on how popular or good-looking or even how well-dressed they are. I'll give you an example of this. A couple years ago, uh, we had our Harvest Festival here at church, and my wife and I came dressed to kill. Here's a picture of us. We look pretty awesome. I do know. We look really good. Okay, it's Dumb and Dumber that year. Now, would you believe that nobody at this church treated us any differently just because we were wearing such awesome tuxes? They treated us just like everybody else. 
See, sometimes even Christians get caught up in this dress for success lifestyle. But not Pastor Ed, okay? Definitely not Pastor Ed when he wears his jeans and flannel, okay? And he says, when I was talking to him as we were preparing this, uh, he was saying that's a whole, like, theological thing for him. He's like, I don't want people to feel uncomfortable when they come in the church, so I dress in flannel and jeans. And so he gave me a story uh, about him and his wife when they were at their first church in Southern California. Uh, their harvest festival was coming up, and uh, so he was going to go there and hand out candy to all the kids that came well, then his friend called him up right before, the, right before the Harvest Festival and said, hey, I got front row tickets to the Lakers game. Do you want to go? And he's like, well, yeah. So his wife said, I'll go in your place. You go to the Lakers game. And so she's like, what am I going to dress up as? She's like, I'll dress up as Pastor Ed. So she wore like baggy jeans and a flannel shirt and drew a beard on her face. And she went there and all the people that are coming through were like, are you supposed to be a bum? <laughs> and it dawned on her that she had never realized that yeah, I know my, my husband, Ed, or whatever, you know, dresses comfortable, but people kind of see it as bum wear, okay? But like Ed said, he does that so nobody that comes into church will feel uncomfortable that the pastor's dressed better than him, because that'll never happen with Pastor Ed, okay? <laughs> but see, here's the thing that sort of governs how Riverside chooses to do what we choose to do here. The people who have fashion sense and good looks and are popular and talented and rich, they can find a church that will take them on anywhere in the city, and while there's nothing wrong with dressing well, looking good, and being talented, and popular, and rich, and while we don't want to chase any of those people away, we also don't want to accidentally and unknowingly create an atmosphere that tells people who aren't those things that they are somehow less welcome than the people who seem to have it all together. And you'll notice if you pay attention here at Riverside, there's plenty of folks who, who dress well and look good and are talented and popular that are a part of this church. They just don't expect to be treated any differently because of it. They have learned how this lifestyle of mercy works, and they want to be a part of it. Everybody's welcome. It was how Jesus lived his life, and while you can see that his disciples loved the fact that the everybody's welcome sign that was hanging around Jesus' neck with him meant that they were welcome, it also meant that sometimes the people they didn't like were welcome too. But over time, they started to get it. After his death, resurrection, and ascension, they started to living like that sign was hanging around their own necks. And they continue Jesus' legacy here on earth. And that legacy, that lifestyle of mercy, changed the world forever. As Christianity started to explode in the Roman world during the first century, the Roman leaders started to send letters back and forth talking about this strange group of people who weren't like any other group they had ever seen. One letter from a Roman governor in Syria said not to worry about the Christians because they'll just let anybody join. And that means the weak, the slaves, the sick, and the poor. Basically, he says with a roster like that, there's no hope for them. But he was wrong. Another letter talks about how the Christians, during a plague, went to the temple of Diana in Ephesus, not to worship or sacrifice, but to help the sick whose families had kicked them out of their houses and abandoned them on the steps of the temple. The Christians were not only not kicking out their own sick, but were taking in the sick of the city abandoned by their own families. And later, another letter from the same governor said the Christians were surviving in greater number, even though they were taking in the sick. So how could this be? The power of belonging and the power of community. And now the scientific community is starting to figure out just how powerful belonging is. A study was done that tracked 7,000 people who were at high risk for disease, the elderly and the chronically sick. They found that those who lived isolated lives were three times more likely to die than those with a community built into their lives. They also found that people who had bad health, bad health habits like smoking, poor eating habits, no exercise, and so on, people with bad health habits but strong social ties 
lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, like jogging and eating well, but were isolated. So in other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with friends than eat broccoli alone. <laughs> this is the power of love and community and acceptance and belonging. I can write that one down for you guys if you want, okay? It's in our bodies and it's in our souls. It is needed by the world that we live in. Once there was a group of people who loved God so deeply and loved each other so irrationally and served the world so passionately that a kind of miracle happened. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3.28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now James would take this concept one step further and he would say this. There's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, well-dressed or raggedy, rich or poor, popular or unpopular, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So that's the first sign. Everybody is welcome. And the second sign we're touching on today is that nobody's perfect. Aren't you glad that that's one of the signs of Jesus? Nobody's perfect. That's one of James's main points in today's uh, section of this letter. So we've all broken God's law and in some way, which means we're all lawbreakers in need of his mercy. If I want God's mercy when it comes time to judge me, then I need to offer mercy to people who need it most in this world. Now, I want to take just a minute and talk about what I imagine most of us are thinking. What about influence? Aren't I, as a follower of Jesus, supposed to have an impact on this world that we live in? What if there's friends of mine who are doing things the Bible says they shouldn't be doing? Wouldn't accepting them mean I'm condoning what they do? What if that means they keep doing what they're doing and their lives get messed up because of it? Okay, yes, we are supposed to have an influence in this world we live in and the people we are in contact with every day. But what is that influence supposed to look like? Well, very rarely should it look like in your face, shouting and screaming and pointing out just how messed up somebody is. Not saying there will never be a time for an intervention in somebody's life. But I imagine those of you who have been involved in an intervention before know that you don't just barge in, right, barge right into that kind of accountability. If and when that time comes, there had better be a ton of prayer and getting advice on your part, and then probably followed by some more prayer. But why? Because people don't care what you know if they aren't convinced that you care. And what I've noticed in my own life is that when people know I care about them, there's a lot of, there's a lot of times when I don't have to say anything out loud to have a ton of influence in their lives. You will never change anyone who doesn't believe that you care about them for who they are and that you accept them unconditionally, even if you don't agree with the way they are living their lives. I know, it's a tough balancing act to perform, and there will be a ton of uncertainty and confusion and frustration along the way. Nobody ever said this was going to be easy. Jesus said there will be plenty of people who will hate you if you live the way he did, and you will spend your time trying to figure out if you're doing the right thing or not. People will tell you you're doing too much, and others will tell you you're not doing enough. And if you don't know why you're doing this, then you might be tempted to give up. Check out this awesome video. It's called, How Do I Know? And a lot of times when people hear the phrase, how do I know, the next thing they say is what? How do I know what? But the key really isn't to know what. The key is to know why. Because when you know your why, you have options on what your what can be. For instance, my why is to inspire people to walk in purpose. My what is stand-up comedy. My what is writing books. My what can be going out with some friends to eat. In fact, another what that has moved me towards my why is a, a web series that we have out now called Break Time. 
So every Wednesday at 3 o'clock, you should subscribe to the, to the channel. Uh, we do a series called Break Time on YouTube. So 3 o'clock, we drop a new episode. One episode in particular I'm about to show you a clip to. We were in, uh, we in Winston-Salem. So Break Time, this is how it works. I travel the country, I do stand-up comedy, probably an hour, hour and a half at an event. And in the middle of my show, I'll just sit down and start talking to the audience. And funny just happens. Or I'll meet somebody who's really interesting. So I met this one guy, and he said that he teaches music at a school. I was like, all right, you teach music, you know, um, can you sing? And then uh, I'm just going to show you the clip. Check it. So you're a musical director. Cool. Yes, sir. All right, so um, let me get a couple. Let me get a couple bars of like uh, "Amazing Grace." Can you do the first part of that? Go ahead. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Wow, that bro could sing. You know what I'm saying? What you give me the version is if uh, your uncle just got out of jail, you got shot in the back when you was a kid. I'm just saying, let me see the hood version real quick. If you know which version I'm talking about, just see if that exists. Let me see what you got. Amazing grace, how sweet the First time I asked him to sing, he knew what he was doing. The second time I asked him to sing, he knew why he was doing it. When you know your why, your what has more impact because you're walking in or towards your purpose. That's pretty cool, huh? Awesome. So what does it have to do with the lesson today? It makes you consider the why of what you're doing. And there can be lots of answers to that. But if, we know, but if we know why we're doing it, we won't be as likely to get tired while we're doing it. And trust me, you'll get tired. We know what the what is, treating people fairly with the mercy of, of Christ. But why are we doing it? Because Jesus did it for us. <clears throat> okay. And that means if I'm going to be like Jesus and experience his power flowing into my life, I'm going to have to treat people the way he treated them for no other reason than it's what he did and he wants us to do too. And like I said, it can get tiring. Here at Riverside, we want to welcome people the way Jesus did. We want to live our lives as though those signs that are around Jesus' neck are on our welcome mats out front. 
Everybody's welcome and nobody's perfect. We want everyone to feel welcomed by us when they walk in here, the same way Jesus might welcome them if he were here in our place. Now, we will never be as good at it as Jesus because, well, he's Jesus and we're not. But this is our why, and this is our mission at the church. There are lots of what's that we use to serve that why. For me with youth group, it's tons of pizza, candy, and games, followed by more pizza, candy, and games. If you ask any of the youth, we get lots of that here at church. So that's what I use, okay? The rest of the church here, we use, uh, we use free donuts, coffee, hot chocolate, tea, funny video clips, and a welcoming environment. So that's our what, but it's not our why. Our why is reaching people with the radical love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus by being weird, okay? And I think we're doing a pretty good job of it, aren't we? Yeah. But it's not easy, okay? There are times we'd rather not be so welcoming. There are people out there that make it hard to welcome them the way Jesus did, which is why we have to continually be reminding ourselves of what our why is. We have to remember that everyone needs the love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus in their lives. And sometimes it means that we have to offer them forgiveness for making it hard to perform our why. This is why the second sign is so important. Remember the first scripture we read that said, Jesus did this for you, now you need to do this for each other. That one is accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Here's the second one in Colossians 3.13. which says, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Jesus says that if you want mercy, you have to live a lifestyle of mercy. Here Paul says if you want forgiveness, then you have to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. But this kind of lifestyle, this way of living as though these signs are around our necks, will not only change the world, it'll change us. It'll make us more like Jesus. It'll bring more of God's acceptance, mercy, and forgiveness, and power into our lives. And as it does, it'll make this third sign a reality. And the third sign we're touching on today is that anything's possible. If you guys get lost along the way, the cheat sheet's right there. Uh, so what Jesus knew and what his disciples learned slowly but surely was that when people are treated with the unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness that Jesus treats all of us with, there is nothing we can't do and nothing we can't become. You can't give up on anybody. The first two places we looked at where the Bible says Jesus did this for you, now you need to do this for each other, were to accept each other just as Jesus accepted us and to forgive each other just as Jesus forgave us. And now we'll finish up with this third one in John 13, 34 through 35. and says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This is how people will know you are a follower of his, if you love others. And that together with accepting others and forgiving others makes for an unstoppable and irresistible force on this earth. It's not the entire story, but this lifestyle of mercy is a big part of what changes the world, and it's an irreplaceable part of what will open your own life up to the mercy, love, and acceptance of Jesus. That's the lifestyle Jesus lived, and it's the lifestyle he's wanting us to embrace with him. Look at what he said in Matthew 21, 21. If you embrace this kingdom life and don't doubt God, you'll not only do minor feats, but you'll also triumph over huge obstacles. So how will you triumph over these obstacles? Because you will know that Jesus is on your side, that he's rooting for you along the way with all the people who are a part of his community. The church is supposed to be the place where no matter what else happens, people will believe in you. 
I'm going to uh, tell you guys one final story before we close. And it's about this, uh, uh, little, this boy who had special needs, and his name was Jake. And he played, for, he played on his high school football team, but he never actually played because, you know, they were afraid he would get hurt. And uh, Jake was there. He'd always suit up for practice and suit up for every single game. Um, and he would always root his team on and cheer him on from the sideline. And when somebody would score a touchdown, he would say, you took it to the house, big boy. And he just loved the game. And he would, obviously his dream was to one day play. So his coach thought he'd make that happen. Well, their team was the worst, the worst team uh, in the league that year. And they were playing the very best team for the last game of the season. And so Jake's coach had talked with the other coach before the game and said, we just want to put him in at the very end of the game. We'll hand him the ball, and he'll take a knee, and the play will be over. Just please don't, you know, tackle him. And the coach is like, yeah, we can do that. Totally fine. So it gets to the last play of the game, and they send Jake onto the field. And uh, the, the other team coach called a timeout, and he ran over, and the other coach is like, oh, my gosh, is he going to not want to do this anymore? And he said, hey, my, my players, they don't want Jake to get in the game. We want him to score a touchdown. So I said, when you hand him the ball, we want him to just run for the end zone, and we won't touch him. And so he's like, I don't even know if he'll know how to run to the end zone. We don't know. So we'll try it. So he goes over and he, he whacks him on the shoulder. He says, Jake, you're going to take it to the house, big boy. Okay? And he's like super, super excited. He's going to have this chance of going. And everybody's believing in him and rooting him on. And I want you guys to check out this clip real quick. game but that team was down 45 points when Jake scored that last touchdown of the game okay but you would think they won the national championship after that and I know this for a fact the boys that played in that game the coaches who coached and the spectators who watched might not remember in detail most of any game that season but what they will remember is how they felt when Jake scored that touchdown and that's what Jesus's community is supposed to look like a group of people cheering for each other to succeed thinking of creative ways to help someone else make it to the end zone of life. That's what this lifestyle of mercy is all about. It's about showing mercy to others, even if they're different than we are. And when we live that kind of life, the mercy comes rushing back at us like a wave. I'll leave you with this last verse from our section of Bible reading for today in James 2.13, which says, If you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So I want you guys to focus on that this week, as well as figuring out the what and why you're doing what you're doing. Figure out that this week, and you'll have a lot more purpose walking through your life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you uh, for today. Thank you for all the folks coming to church this morning. And I pray you'd be with them as they go about this week, and they try and practice this lifestyle of mercy and forgiveness and love to the people they come in contact with, whether it's at work or school or wherever they end up. And I pray you help them figure out the, what they're, the thing of what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing so that their life will have more purpose for you. In Jesus' name, amen.